Well, good morning, everybody. So I want to welcome you here today. If you're here online or if you're in person, um, thanks for taking time to be with us. And uh, let me just acknowledge here, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but church is a very complex, complicated, messy thing. What I mean by that is this, that when you come to church, first of all, we know that the church is the people of God, not necessarily just a building, but when you come to morning worship, uh, you come as an individual. And so as an individual, you prioritize as a habit inside of your life to be here. As an individual, you come with a variety of expectations, needs, circumstances inside of your life. And yet also we gather collectively. And so what becomes fascinating inside the gathering of a group of people is Well, Paul would say it this way, that rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, that inside of any one room, there are any number of situations, circumstances, even a great polarity inside of what you have been through over the past week or so. And somehow we bring that all together. And so even when we sing songs that may say, you know, great is your faithfulness, for some of us, that is a affirmation and a testimony. And for some, it is a heartfelt, desperate prayer that God would show up inside of circumstances. And we've all lived there in the middle of that. You've been in worship services where someone is rejoicing at the birth of a baby and somebody else is weeping at the loss of a spouse. You've been perhaps in, you know, settings where uh, someone is going through great difficulty even while somebody else shouts victory. And so the complexity of of this whole thing we've been thinking about, baggage, is the idea that no two of us are alike. And even if we have similar stories, there is the specifics and the particularities and how something hits you or where you are in the process versus where I am in the process. There is something very individual and very corporate that goes on at the same time. So as as a church, one of the things we, as a church staff, one of the things we talk about and say is, while we plan for the many... God meets people individually. And so when we plan and and think about things and strategize, it's thinking about a a room full of people that's going to gather for worship or a small group of people who are going to gather for Bible study or for a group of people gathering in youth group or for a team of people who are going to come together to do a particular thing. Yet the reality is, even though we plan for the many, you recognize that God meets the one. And so the most powerful life-transforming encounters you have had with Jesus have probably taken place inside of a context where there were eight or 80 or 800 or 8,000 other people in the room, but yet it seemed like God was speaking directly to you and that it was just you and Jesus inside of that moment. God's like that, and the local church is like that. And so that's why there's a collective experience that we offer where sometimes it seems like the message is directed right to you, and sometimes it just becomes something that, you know, kind of builds your faith in the background. And, And so inside of this series called Baggage, we've thought about that, you know, kind of coming at this from a variety of different angles to say that we may not all be dealing with the same thing. And even if, you know, say for instance, it's anxiety that we may all not have issues of anxiety or the same level or the same history or the same depth. But here's some building blocks. Here's some things that need to be a part of our life. And so that's how we've structured the series through, you know, some some questions and some foundational thoughts that really help undergird this. But the reality is, just as if we all have baggage, all of our situations are so customized. Now, I tried this at the first service and it really didn't go over. And so I doubt it's going to go over well here either. But 
How many of you have ever received or let's even broaden that and say you remember somebody else being gifted the gift of luggage? All right, about the same number. There's about four or five of you. So it used to be one of those rite of passages things that maybe at high school graduation or college graduation or when you get married, uh, you were gifted a nice set of luggage. Now it doesn't seem like we really do that. You, know, you kind of you know, grab a bag here or a bag there. But it used to be luggage was you know, a very uh, memorable rite of passage type gift. Maybe I'm just thinking of George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life and Old Man Gower gives him, you know, the luggage and says, you know, bon voyage, George, but he never leaves. You know, you get the whole story there, but maybe I'm stuck in Christmas mode. But the reality is, like, your baggage and my baggage is customized. It has your little name card attached to it. It's got maybe the stickers on the side of where you've been and where you've gone through. The collection and the amount and the weight is different, but yet there are some things that are consistent and true inside of Scripture that you know, go across the board inside of all of our varied life experience. So I want to spend a couple of moments this morning in uh, the book of Genesis. And so Genesis, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, significant figures that we meet in Genesis from Adam to Noah, you know, down to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, and we sang about a little bit before, you know, about God's promises. And that kind of begins, that's Genesis is a book of promises. It's a book of beginnings. And, and, and inside of that, when you come to the story of Abraham, uh, God calls to Abraham and says, I want to make you a great nation, so I'm going to call you away from your people, away from where you've grown up, away from everything that's familiar to you, and I'm going to lead you to a land that will be your own. There's a promise that I'm going to be with you, and you're going to have a ton of kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids. And that's going to be the beginning of the people of God, a peculiar people who were chosen by me and belong to me. And Abraham went. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, that there was an act of righteousness, righteousness just for him to say, God, I believe you and I will follow in what you have promised for me. Now, a new future is kind of vague. You can wrap your mind around that. Leave your homeland. All right, it's difficult, but that's tangible. I can do that taking you to a new land, at least there is something that you could point to that is objective, uh, that you know that God is leading you to. But the problem inside of Abraham's walk with God inside of that moment was the offspring question wasn't going to be easily answered. Because Abraham was up in years, he was probably as old or older than almost everyone inside of this room. They've tried to have kids Inside of that day and age, I mean, you know, children was not just a, a family legacy, but it was, there were financial implications. There was impl implications to God's blessing upon who you were. And so no doubt Abraham and Sarah had tried to have children and could not. And so God could do the miraculous, but thus far inside of our lives, God has not provided. So they get the bright idea that they do have uh, servants that work for them and, and that belong to them. And so the Egyptian woman, Hagar, uh, Sarah gets the idea, why don't you, you know, take my servant, Hagar, marry her, have kids by her. And so this was not some affair on the side. This was, you know, something that was thought through, that was arranged. They actually, they got married. Uh, and so Hagar instantly becomes pregnant. Um, not instantly, I have no idea how long it took or, you know, how many weeks or months or whatever, you know, the timeline went. But uh, Hagar gets pregnant and, you know, sure enough, maybe this could be the way that God's blessing and call to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. Now, she has not yet had the baby, meaning 
it's a couple of months, it's, it's a few months. I, I mean, they didn't have this, but you know, it's just around the time of the second ultrasound. Like, I mean, we're talking a few months into this reality, all of a sudden, Sarah doesn't feel so good about the situation. She gets a little irritated, a little bit more than irritated. She gets angry. She gets bitter. She begins to think that if, if God called my husband to do this thing and promised, how is it now that I am cut out of not just God's future for him, but what then could be God's future for me? And so even though they had taken matters into their own hands and said, you know, we, we can't get pregnant, why don't you consider Hagar, you know, take another wife, that's very common inside of this culture, take another wife, Hagar gets pre pregnant, yes, that's it, that's wonderful. No, there is still something within Sarah that doesn't sit quite right. And so scripture just says simply that she mistreated Hagar. And we know that this mistreating is not just a a nasty look or a comment that goes sideways or giving her, you know, the worst spot at the dinner table. It has to be so bad that a, an Egyptian woman who was far from home with no family and no provision and no protection decides to actually leave there. In this first situation, we're going to get to another one in Genesis 21, but in Genesis 16, Hagar is not sent out, but, but she chooses to leave pregnant, alone, with no resources, she says, I'm going to take my chances out on my own than staying here. Genesis 16, picking up with verse number seven. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And so Hagar at this point, instead of the, the desperation and the brokenness and, and feeling alone and, and cut off and things being so bad that she's willing to take her chances on her own, then to stay one more moment inside of that house being mistreated, treated harshly, maybe even violently by Sarah. And so she goes out and she doesn't get very far before she comes to the end of her resources, her capabilities all that she could do to provide for herself and for her unborn son. <clears throat> and there God meets her. And he first begins with a couple of questions. Hagar, where have you come from <clears throat> and where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going? You know, if you could summarize your life at this point inside of any one situation, any one relationship, any one emotion, or your life as a whole, you could almost write the story of your life in where have you come from and where are you going? 
What has God brought you through? What are the circumstances, the situations, the things that have marked you and made you who you are that have been tremendous blessings or your deepest valleys? Where have you come from? And where are you going? What are your hopes, your dreams, your expectations? What's the direction in which your feet are walking that if God continued to grant you the next step after the next step, where inside of your mind are you going to end up? It's a couple of powerful questions, and certainly God knows the answer to them. He knows where Hagar has been. He knows everything she's experienced. And there could almost be this cynicism in her that says, if only you knew and could have made it different. There is pain inside of that question for Hagar as she hears it. Hagar, where have you come from? And where are you going? A couple of weeks ago, we said that John Calvin had made the statement that without, no, without the knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self, and without the knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God, and there is something inside the transforming work of God that until you know who you are and where God has called you from, you'll never adequately and accurately and faithfully journey the path that he has for you moving forward. And so are you aware of what's behind you? We don't necessarily know what's ahead of us, but are you aware of what's behind you and how that's shaping where you are walking today? Because here's the myth inside of our society is that we think, you know, I can acknowledge my past and my past is, you know, that, you know, that, that I've been over here and, and, you know, through this situation of difficulty or, you know, this type of thing that I can get to the place and we use phrases like that I can wipe the slate clean, that I can start new, that I can start fresh, that I'm never going back, that the future is going to be different. And that somehow we think we can draw the line and stop that somehow what happened here is not going to affect what lies ahead of me here. And that's a myth. Now, the myth is not that, that God said that I can take your sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west, west and that there could be a new creation and the slate wiped clean inside of your relationship with Almighty God. But as far as who you are, you are a product of everything collectively that has taken place inside of your life up until now. You are not locked into that and you are not bound by that, but you better acknowledge it and understand it and work through it and grow in the midst of it if you ever want to be faithful to what God has for you next. And so he says, Hagar, where have you come from? And where are you going? And then in the midst of that question, and I don't know if Hagar answered out loud, if she thought about it, if there were tears running down her face, if there was desperation. But then he says, I want you to go back. Now, if God's going to ask, where have you come from and where are you going? And what took place in her life led her to take her chances on her own rather than remain inside of that house any longer. Why in the world would he call her to go back? And listen, we don't know what happens. When we get to the rest of the story, you know, there's going to be a number of details there. One of the details we don't have is if Sarah started to be nice to Hagar. If Hagar was treated better, if Hagar had any inclusion inside of their family, if there was what type of interaction took place. We don't know that, but the one thing we know is that God called her not to run from her past, but to go back and to face it and to work through it, I have never seen a situation where somebody has grown, 
has come through a difficult situation without there being difficult things that had to be done. I've never seen a situation where God has exponentially grown someone's faith without, without them stepping into doing something that was difficult, hard, countercultural, or that was going to face consequences inside of their lives. It's not the way that we grow. I wish it were so that, you know, if we just prayed the right prayers and we just entered into this, that God would give us every desire of our heart and everything would just line up nice, nicely like that commercial where the lights just turned green one after the other and there were never any stoplights, there was never any speed bumps, there were never any accidents, there was never any collisions, everything was just smooth sailing. But the people that I've read about and the people that I know who have lived faithfully for Jesus where God has grown their faith and used their life, there have always been speed bumps and stoplights and collisions and things that they didn't see coming, but those things have helped shape them to be the people that God eventually used them and needed them to be. So he says, I want you to go back. And then he gives a promise, and he says, I'm going to be with you and with your son. And in fact, he's going to have so many kids that, you know, your descendants are going to be numerous. And inside of that moment, Hagar gives us one of the many names that we have for God. If you did a study, maybe there's somewhere around 100 names for God that are, that are listed and given inside of Scripture. One of them comes from Hagar. A cut-off, broken dying lady at the end of her rope says inside of that moment, you are the God who sees me. And for centuries since, uh, you know, Jewish believers and Christian believers alike have used the phrase El Roi to mean that you are the God who sees. And we get that phrase and we get that idea because of Hagar. And so she goes back. Again, we don't know the situation, how it happens, but she has a son, she raises him. Now, I think in my, my Sunday school mentality of things, I tend to think that Ishmael and Isaac are pretty close in age, right? You know, that they're brothers and, you know, everything that's referred to about them. But the reality is there are 14 years that take place in between when Ishmael was born and when Isaac was born. Abraham was 86 years old, then he's 100 years old. In fact, there's somewhere between, you know, three months to nine months later, it says after Isaac was weaned, that is when, you know, the next set of events takes place. So maybe perhaps there's been almost 15 years, 14 and a half years between when God called her to go back and the next time that we come into contact with Hagar. And we don't know what happened in that interim time. But again, Sarah gets angry and jealous and a little bit bitter. This time she has a baby of her own, but now that she has a baby of her own, there's really even less of a need for Hagar and for Ishmael to be around. She senses, you know, and I think she kind of projects into the situation that people are mocking her or that, that somehow she's being look, looked down upon. And so they kind of collectively come up with this idea of maybe it's time for Hagar and Ishmael to go. And so Abraham takes and he gathers food and he gathers water and enough provisions that he could kind of you know, give to her inside of what she can carry, and he sends her again with a blessing and sends her and the child on their way. And you know, again, how it turns out. The provisions run out. Again, there's a situation of desperation, near death, cut off, alone. It's almost 
the exact situation as back in chapter 16, although now instead of carrying a baby inside of her belly, she has a 14, almost 15-year-old son. Keep that in mind as we read this next section, because again, I'm inside of my mind's eye, I'm tempted to think of Ishmael as a little boy, as a baby, as a toddler. But listen to the words of Genesis 21. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water, and he gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent them, uh, set her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered as far as the desert of Beersheba. When the water of the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Once again, God sees her. And again, we could pick apart all the situations and the circumstances and why, why did it get like this or why did it have to happen that way or couldn't he have shown up sooner? And I think this whole story even is, is kind of nuanced to me when I think about the fact that Ishmael is 14 or 15 years old. And so any of us who are parents who would know that we would gladly give up every ounce of water that we had and, and food and provision to make sure if nothing else, he's going to survive even if I don't. And so I don't know what's taken place inside of this moment, if there's been illness or injury or something that has happened, but it's teenage Ishmael who's laying under a tree, dying, and mom walks the distance away of about a bow and arrow, maybe 80 or 100 yards, and says, I can't sit here and watch him die. And she goes and she sits down and she begins to sob. God says, once again, I see you. Once again, I hear your cry and even the cry of your son. Cut off and exiled and alone with no resources to your name, I want to be the one who shows up. And he provides. Only this time it says he opened her eyes. Inside of the, the pain and the disappointment and the agony and the struggle and everything that's there, the God who sees is also the one who opens eyes. And I don't know inside of this moment if God raises up a new spring of water where there wasn't one so that Hagar can see it, or if God opened her eyes to what was there all along that she missed. And I'll give you my biblical interpretive opinion of that is I don't care. Because the reality is that inside of desperation, God shows up and he sees and he hears and he provides. And he meets them in the midst of their deepest need. Let's flesh this out a little bit, this idea of El Roi and the God who sees. That God sees you. That's the part that we would normally say, you know, that, that God sees me, that God notices me, that God is aware of my circumstances, that God wants to know me and have a relationship. He's a self-revealing God, that there is nowhere that I am that God doesn't see me. And that is true, and that's the foundational part of this. But it also includes the fact that God sees further, deeper, 
and clearer than you and I could ever see. That's why as part of your story, you say that I had no idea when I prayed that prayer 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and God didn't answer it, and I was upset at the time. Now I know what God was doing. I'm so glad that God didn't answer my prayer, and he asked me to marry me, marry him. Or that that boss didn't offer me the job that I so wanted that I thought was the best thing out there. Or that, you know, I thought that this was going to be the best thing for me or that was going to be the best thing. Think about the places where you thought you saw and God saw further into your story, deeper into your need, and clearer into your situation than you ever could have. I am grateful not just for a God who sees me where I am, but a God who sees beyond where I am into the larger picture that I don't understand and I can't figure out. Why is it that this would happen to Hagar twice? Why is it that 15 years would not be enough to kind of soothe over the relationship? Why do we still continue to carry some of the things that we carry? I don't know, but I know that God sees me and God sees further, deeper, and clearer than I ever could. And then with that in mind, God helps you see what would otherwise be unseen. And so you participate with God in this thing called discipleship. There is something that God alone can do in their situation that, it's, that if God doesn't show up, we are desperate, alone, cut off, broken, hopeless, whatever you want to say, that if God doesn't show up, there is nothing more I can do here. But there are plenty of situations and plenty of times where there are things that are lying right in front of us that we need God to open our eyes to see this, the spring of water that's right over there that can supply what we need. Ephesians 2 reminds us that we are God's workmanship, we are God's handiwork, that you are uniquely made and positioned for the work that God has for you to do in him with your life. That you're unique, that there's not another person out there like you. And, and so even when we talked about this idea of baggage, there's a collection of things that take place inside of each and every one of our lives that is so customized and unique that there's no two that looks the same. And so let me just kind of illustrate this for us a little bit. That inside of your life, your life is comprised, and, and these eight don't describe it, but these are some of the major headings, not just of baggage, but even just of life itself. Your life is comprised of your relationships, whether healthy or unhealthy, your family background, again, whether healthy and, and strong and it's kind of built you into the person you are or whether it's something that you are still trying to recover from and undo inside of your life, your past in general, beyond just your family of origin, but the experiences and the things that have happened, the levels of pain and trauma and brokenness that have taken place, your disposition, your outlook. There are some of us, the way that you've been taught and wired and maybe you've learned or maybe just as kind of God wired within you of how we see and relate to things. Your personality, some of us are introverted or extroverted or sensory or kind of more intuitive, those kind of things that are uniquely you, aspects inside of our physical health, our emotional health, the way in which we've processed through what we kind of bring into the situation as far as whether we are healthy or not. And then a few weeks ago, we talked about our habits, you know, that your life is made up of these habits. Inside of each and every one of these things, they interact. Your personality affects your relationships. 
Because there are times where you just want to shut down and not let anybody else in and you need to pick up the phone or invite somebody in. Your physical health is going to determine whether or not you have the resilience to walk through and work through some of this junk that you have to do. These things are all interactive and this whole like collectiveness, my wheel looks different than your wheel. Even if we grew up in the same house, all these things become different about us. And so that's why we've said that two people can walk through something that seems very similar and come out on different ends. And so let me just illustrate that by going and taking this and putting it inside the larger context of what we deal with. When something happens, maybe it's an event, something that happens to you. Maybe it's a trigger, it's an emotion. There's, there's something that happens inside of your life. Somebody breaks up with you, you lose your job. There's something that happens that, that spirals you into you know, a seasonal depression. You lose a loved one. And those are just some of the big ones. Maybe there's some smaller things. There is something that happens inside of your life that triggers an emotion or a set of emotions inside of your life. That is also marked by the context in which you live. You do not live in 1850. You live in 2022. There are some things that, w- that are much, would have been much more difficult in 1850 in terms of dealing with some of the things, and there are things that are much more difficult today, but you don't get the choice of deciding when you live or when you were born. You live here and now today. Your context is also your fatigue, the margin inside of your life, you know, the overall just what you bring into a situation. So let me illustrate it. You know, if you have this, you know, conflict with your spouse, that also tends to happen when you're at a point in time where you are tired and stressed and overwhelmed, that conflict is going to get amplified because of the context of your life. Then in addition to that, you bring to it all these things that make you who you are. Your personality, your past, your family of origin, your relationships, your overall health. And so there is no two situations are the same because no two problems are the same and no two people are the same. What's interesting is how we walk through this process, the same person can have the same thing happen and for some of us it makes us better and some of us it makes us bitter. Some people go through significant challenge and they grow inside of their faith and some people abandon their faith. The key to this baggage thing is not how do we eliminate the events? Because Jesus said, if you live inside of this world, you will have trouble. And actually, some of the troubles inside of your life are not just what we should expect, but they're also some of the things that have the capacity to grow our faith. But how do we shift our context to better understand the times in which we live, the things that we need to do to make sense of the world that we're in, to to build margin inside of our life, rest inside of our life? How do we work on the things that we know make us who we are so that when situation A happens, I come out stronger rather than weaker? That's the question, not how do I eliminate bad things or why did this happen to me and not to her or to him? But how do I work through the situation inside of my life that I have an effect on that when these things come up, it doesn't derail me, but it improves and increases my relationship with Christ? 
because God sees. And God not only sees you, but he sees so much deeper and clearer and further than you and I ever could inside of our lives. And so instead of trying to figure it out or avoid it or make excuses for it or play the blame game of why is it happening to me and somebody else, what if we became people who engaged with and wrestled with the baggage that exists inside of our lives? What if we were people who really believed this? And if we really believed, uh, now that, that next slide, if we really believe these three things, that makes a difference then inside of whatever it is that you're going to encounter on Monday morning or Thursday evening of this next week. If you really believe that God sees you and that God sees further, deeper, and clearer, and that God wants to enable you to give you eyes to see, what would that do then to, to bring some resilience or resources to the table with whatever it is that you're going to come in contact with this week? In the weakest, in the darkest, and the hardest, hardest moments, God sees you. And if God sees you, then we have to be people who keep fighting that we walk towards the mess, that we don't make excuses, that we don't try to sidestep the pain, that we actually engage in the places where God wants us to engage that he might grow our faith. The phrase we use sometimes around here is that we want to be people who are thermostats and not thermometers. Our world is filled with thermometers that can tell you the temperature of the room. You pull up any social media channel or any news outlet, whether it's on the right or the left or anywhere in between, our world is filled with people who want to say what's wrong and who's to blame and, and where, where everything is and, and just throw the blame game all across about where the problems are. And I think what Jesus is looking for is a group of people who say, I don't want to just be somebody who can tell the temperature of the room, but who can change the temperature in the room. And that begins with the person in your mirror and not the person who you voted for or didn't vote, vote for or the person who employs you or that you wish didn't still oversee you inside of your work, it, it begins with the person in the mirror. There's a Teddy Roosevelt quote that uh, has become popular. You may know this, you may not know this, but over 100 years ago, uh, this is what Teddy Roosevelt says in regard to this. And I think there was no Instagram or Facebook then, but, but still as somebody who probably faced his fair share of criticism, Teddy Roosevelt said, it's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes, short, comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause or worthy causes, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who even at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall not never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I think what Teddy Roosevelt knew, you know, 100 years ago or more is the idea that Life happens with those who show up, right? Change happens with the people who show up. And the place where you show up first is inside of your own life. 
There is no way in seven weeks we could go through all the different versions of baggage that are out there and, you know, solve areas of depression or anxiety or loneliness or, you know, your relationship, you know, that still exists or did exist with your dad or, you know, the wayward relationship with your kids or the situations that you struggle with or you hate your job or you don't hate your job or, you know, you have, you don't have enough money or you had money and you lost it or, you know, all these different things. But whatever it is that you bring to the situation Know that the God that you relate to is a God who sees you, who sees further and deeper and more clearly about your situation than you ever could, and he wants to be the God who opens your eyes, even just for the next steps of what lies in front of you. But this is not for the weak. This is not for the people who just want to sit on the sideline and complain about where the problem is and who's to blame and and why we've gotten to where we've gotten with. This takes somebody who's willing to get up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, if God is who I believe him to be, that even inside of my situation as it is now, I'm going to keep fighting and working and striving. And the things I can't control are in God's hands and the things that are within my control, I'm going to do what I can do today and trust him with the things that I can't control for tomorrow. Because God is a God who sees. Let's pray together. Let me just invite you that at the the close of this series, we all have a variety of different bags that we carry, and some of them are old, some of them are new, some of them are heavy, some of them are not all that heavy. But if you could identify one thing or one area or one relationship to say that, God, if you are with me, Lord, I want to trust you with this today. And to trust him with this is not to say that it's going to vanish tomorrow or the perfect solution is going to exist, but maybe the prayer is that, God, I trust you with it. And would you give me the strength to remain in the arena? That even when victory is not guaranteed, that I'll continue to walk, to fight, to pursue the wholeness and the health that you want to bring inside of my life. The interesting thing about baggage is that we tend to collect it rather easily, but it's also when you see someone who begins to make progress inside of one area of their life, it spills over into other areas. And so God, I pray today that you would even begin or continue the work that you're doing inside of our lives, Lord, that we would not be be people who are content to sit on the sidelines and complain or offer criticism or commentary, but you would help, help us to engage inside of the baggage that exists inside of our lives. Thank you for the promise that you are the God who sees and that your vision is so much better and deeper and clearer than our vision. But God, we would also pray that you would open our eyes this week to next steps or conversations or just things that you would have us do to walk forward. God, we thank you today for the hope that we have in you. We thank you today for the freedom that we have in you. We thank you today for the identity and for the purpose and the calling that we have in you. 
And God, would you move us forward to be people who trust you with the things that we can't control? Lord, we thank you today for all that you have done for us. We pray your blessing upon us that even as we prepare to go, Lord, that you would remind us that you're the God who sees. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.